Today is the second day of our five-day hybrid session. Um, the date is the 6th of June 2021 and we're going to continue our reading from An Experience of Enlightenment by Flora Courtois. This is um, the, the main body of the text. We, we looked at Yasutani Roshi's introduction yesterday. And uh, this, um, this story begins with a dedication. For Zen Master Hakuin Yasutani Roshi, to whom this was related in full for the first time and who requested that it be written down. So now it's the voice of Flora Courtois herself. When and where does this story begin? It is difficult to say. Even now I remember the feeling as a small child that all things about me, the people, the animals, trees and flowers, my dolls, my plate and spoon, all participated with me in one vivid reality. It was a family joke that I had to be spoken to several times to get my attention. So absorbed did I often become in listening and watching, in play with my dolls and later on in reading. Often I felt in magic communion with other living things. Some of my earliest memories are of rescuing drowning insects from a small pond, of exhorting, escort, escorting small spiders from the house so they would not be killed, of lying on my stomach in a neighbouring field, raptly absorbed in the busy life of the tiny creatures under the giant grass blades. She's describing here um, the kind of Garden of Eden that we can experience as children. It's um, it's just a fact, though, that we all are, even um, in the best of childhoods, we're all drawn at a certain point um, to, you could say, eat from the tree of, of knowledge, of, of dualistic consciousness, we would say in Buddhism. And she, she goes on to relate um, that very thing happening. Despite these empathic experiences of early childhood, by the time I was 13 or 14 years old, I had become a self-centered, self-conscious girl. It was as if I'd lost track of who I was. I daydreamed a good deal about being popular among many friends. In actuality, I was nervous and isolated, not knowing how to be comfortable with young people my age and anxiously searching for some role to play in life. I think many, many, many of us can relate to this kind of feeling uh, from our adolescence. It's, it's, it's such a painful time. 
painful and confusing as we do make this this change from the the innocence of childhood into into um, more um, powerful sense of of separate separate selves. Um, I can remember once when we were in um, Mexico with Roshi. It was before uh, a seven-day session that we were attending, and we were at um, a cafe, I think, and we saw this group of teenagers um, around the cafe, and their their um, pain uh, was was very evident in their in their behaviour. Um, besides the besides you know hidden maybe behind a certain amount of bravado, but very clear to see, and um, we commented on it to Roshi. This is Roshi, Roshi Bowden, and um, um, he he nodded and and. Um, as a kind of teaching, said to us, "Well, just think about it a minute. Um, you you will be reborn and have to go through adolescence again. <laughs> good good uh, motivation for for practicing now. That perhaps maybe to some degree loosen loosen that that that." Um, strong sense of self that comes to the fore in adolescence. I daydreamed a good deal about being popular among many friends. In actuality I was nervous and isolated, not knowing how to be comfortable with young people my age and anxiously searching for some role to play in life. At times, what I felt to be my inner voice seemed to be trying to draw me away from the busy life and activities of my friends. It was as if I were in, of two minds, and this sometimes left me confused and unable to act at all. Probably these were normal adolescent feelings, intensified by the pressures of being ahead of my age and usual grade in school. We, we might ask, in, the, in looking at this contrast between um, her early years, quite idyllic, full of um, empathy, and this, this teenage time, what happens? Why does it happen? Does it have to happen? in, in uh, partial answer to those questions uh, I'd like to just read um, a little bit from a, a booklet called uh, The Way of Liberation this is um, by a teacher Adya Shanti who um, is, comes from both a Zen and an Advaita Vedanta background this, this elements of both in his teaching and he um, writes in this book about what he calls the false self 
This is what he says. The false self grows out of unconscious being. It is a fragmented amalgam of the many selves tenuously bound together by a facade of normalcy. It is a divided house built upon an imaginary foundation, a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. The false self is the greatest barrier, all barriers are imagined of course, to the realization of our true identity of universal being. Uh, we we might use a different term here, but they're both pointing to the same thing. We might say true nature or mu rather than being. But really all words don't capture it. So we can we can work with different terms. The false self is essentially a psychological process occurring in the mind that organizes, translates and makes sense or in many cases nonsense, of all incoming data from the senses. When this psychological process mixes together with the self-reflexive movement of consciousness, it produces a sense of self. This sense of self then pervades consciousness as a sort of perfume that causes the mind to mistake what is actually a psychological process for being an actual separate entity called oneself. This mistaken conclusion that you are a distinct separate self happens very early in life in a more or less automatic and unconscious way. We could say, we could say that it's a normal part of human development even though it, we can also say it's a delusion. And it really, it really strengthens and and uh, develops so strongly um, during adolescence, though it starts much earlier than that. By identifying with a particular name that belongs to a particular body and mind, the self begins the process of creating a separate identity. Add in a complex jumble of ideas, beliefs and opinions, along with some selective and often painful memories with which to create a past to identify with, as well as the raw emotional energy to hold it all together, and before you know it, you've got a very convincing, though divided, self. This is not to say that in the development of a human being, the false self has no purpose or use. It is simply to say that it has no existence whatsoever outside of the mind. The self develops in order that you may gain a healthy sense of individuation and autonomy that helps you navigate life in a way conducive to your survival and well-being. In fact, if, we, if this doesn't happen, then um, it can lead to serious mental illness if we don't develop a, um, a sense of autonomy. We, we were saying in the opening ceremony that um, our ego, it's another way of talking about the sense of self, is not necessarily bad. It's, it, it's 
becomes problematic when we we identify strongly with it. And if if it it, it is confined in its activities to um, preoccupation with itself. In, in Tibetan Buddhism, they they emphasize again and again that, that all our problems issue from our self-preoccupation. It's narrowing down of our experience of things to a very limited band. If we can, if we can harness our sense of self, our ego, um, in service to others, then it can become a very um, useful uh, assistant. We just don't want it to be in charge, servant rather than a master. He goes on, the problem is that few people ever develop true psychological autonomy and even those who do are often so entranced by the false self that they never imagine its illusory nature or what lies beyond it. But once true autonomy is developed, the self is no longer needed in the same way that infancy is no longer needed when you grow into adulthood. It may, however, be more accurate to say that it is the autonomy that is truly important and that the false self is essentially an imaginary byproduct of the self-reflexive mechanism of consciousness which identifies itself with the endless movement of conditioned thinking. The problem is that the self that you have become convinced was the real you is a phantom that exists only as an abstraction in your mind, animated by the conflicted emotional energy of separation. It's about as real as last night's dream, and when you stop thinking it into existence, it has no existence at all. That's why it is false, which begs the question, who or what is the real you? Like the questions we asked, ask ourselves in koans, in the fundamental koans, are designed to um, help us to deconstruct our false self. And discover what is beyond. She continues. When I was 16, minor surgery had to be performed. An ether cone was placed over my face, and as I breathed in deeply, a great whirling spiral of light approached from an enormous distance and at great speed. At the same time, a voice of unmistakable authority seemed to say that when the center of the spiral reached me, I would, and this is in quotes, understand all things. Just as the center reached me, I blacked out, but after recovering, there remained an unforgettable conviction that what I had heard and seen was in some inexplicable way the deepest truth. 
this was one of the experiences that gave her the faith to um, keep going through what we will see as a, a very difficult process. In, in Buddhism, we never need to have uh, blind faith. It's understood that, that, that faith is based on an experience. And really this, this experience is, is um, evidence that in some way it was her whole being was turning towards this question of uh, what is reality? What is the fundamental reality? She continues, Sometime during my 17th year, quietly, unobtrusively, a process began which was to build up over a period of several years until it literally took over my life. This began with a growing sense of doubt which spread until it encompassed everything I'd been taught and everything I knew. As everybody uh, who's working on a koan has heard, um, this doubt is um, an essential part of, of koan work. Um, perplexity is another way of describing it. And it's certainly not uh, a pleasant sensation to, to experience this doubt. It, it's unsettling. It's... Uh, Undermining, really, in some sense, of our of our ordinary uh, worldly comforts and pleasures, we, we could say it's it's a truly subversive feeling. In the house where we were living, there were a number of books of maxims written by the great persons of many ages. I read these, collecting favourite sayings in a scrapbook, which I still have. However, I began to think it strange that with all the books of advice in the world, all the laws and admonitions from parents, teachers, priests and other elders, there was still nothing to assure me of living fully in any given moment since every moment was unique. How did one fit the rule to reality when by the time one had found the right rule, the moment was gone? And we could ask also why there is so much suffering in the world when, when there are all these tomes full of, of wisdom. It's, it's not that we need to reject this, this, these books of sayings or advice. But unless they're, unless they're assimilated, they're not going to be any help, as she says, in any given moment, since that moment is unique. 
This is something that's long been been recognized by Zen. There's the the um, the four phrases that are attributed to Bodhidharma, which which point to uh, a similar kind of understanding. Teaching outside the sutras, not reliant on words and letters, direct pointing to the human heart and realizing Buddhahood. We have to embody the teaching to become the Buddha Dharma, to live it. Actually, even saying become is wrong. We, we don't become Mu because we already are Mu. In fact, in fact, this idea of becoming something is part of our, our ego delusion. It's one of the ways that the, the false self operates. We think we have to become something other than what we already are. And the second noble truth points to the cause of our suffering being tanha or craving. There are three kinds. Kama tanha, bhava tanha, and vibhava tanha. Our craving for sensory experience, stimulation. Our craving for becoming we want to be somebody, somewhere. And then the third one, to, to not become or to not exist, vibhava tanha. We also sometimes long crave for annihilation, to be rid of it all. These are the three basic types of thirst that that cause our suffering. Even we can say that wish to become a better person is is uh, an ego maneuver. We if we uh, don't see through this, then we can approach the practice as a kind of means to an end. I'll do this and I'll be a better person. I'll do this and uh, I'll attain enlightenment. Shikantaza is, is um, it's emphasized in many texts, many passages by Dogen, that it is an embodiment of the way of the Buddha, an, an expression of our true nature rather than in any way instrumental. But actually all the practices we do can be understood in this way.
she continues. In a vague, groping way, I now began to search for some single law, some one basic reality so primary that it permeated all else. I had been brought up as a Catholic. Each Sunday I dutifully attended Mass with neither much understanding nor any real sense of participation. I was an onlooker, and I felt ashamed of this. The problem, I concluded, must lie in the fact that I didn't understand my religion. So shortly thereafter, I made my way to the study of the parish priest, where, sitting on the edge of my chair, I asked him to explain these matters to me. He went over the various doctrines of the Church, of the Trinity and the Virgin Birth, of salvation and redemption, to make sure I knew them. I felt intensely disappointed that he didn't seem to come to the core of the matter. He then sent me home with three or four books to read further on doctrine. Dutifully, I read them all, only to finish with more questions and doubts than ever. I clearly remember thinking, surely there must be something that applies even to the everyday tasks of life, even to how I wash the dishes at night. But how do I find it? I think it's fair to say that most people in this world, um, if they ascribe to any religion at all, are quite happy, mostly, to take someone else's word for the truth and believe rather than experience. The, the, those who actually undertake to to find out what the truth is, to search for the truth, are few. About uh, maybe five years ago, I was at home by myself, and um, there was a knock on the front door, and. There were two people there, um, uh, an older woman and a, and a young Korean Bible study student, uh, maybe 15 or 16 years old. And um, they, were, they were evangelical Protestants. And uh, the older woman was doing the final assessment for the young kids um, Bible studies and they asked me if I if they I would be willing to have him uh, practice his evangelizing on me for his assessment and so I, th I think I mentioned said that I was a Buddhist and maybe that would discourage them but they they came on in and um, sat down and um, he had his passage already to to um, uh, teach me, and I don't remember the whole passage, but it included the the phrase "living water," which is a wonderful image from from Christian teachings. And so, um, 
sort of putting on my, my Zen hat, I asked him, can you show me the living water? And uh, he, he just looked, <laughs> poor kid, he just looked really confused. And uh, I didn't press it further, it would have been unkind to do, to do so. Um, but I could say that the living water was not alive enough for him that he could convey that to somebody else. course there are Christians who do embody their teachings and um, just as we have the the, the great um, ancestors from from the past as as examples the Christians have many saints and the desert fathers as examples for them and of course just as we have recent examples the Christians do um, so thinking of of, of examples, um, the great um, African American theologian came to mind, um, Howard Thurman. Uh, he made a kind of a very urgent effort. Um, it was a really an existential questioning for him effort to interpret the teachings and life of Jesus in a way that would really be meaningful for those who stood, um, as he said, with their backs to the wall. Because for the American blacks, Christianity had often been on the side of the oppressor and the strong. Um, Bible passages would be quoted to to the slaves, used against them. And so for Thurman, it was as a, as a faithful Christian, it, it was absolutely pressing that he be able to understand the, the fundamental teachings in a way that would be uh, of, of real spiritual support and, and uh, nourishment to his people and to him. So there are, there are lots of different ways of making the teachings real, but it is essential for the for the health of a of a tradition that there are these exceptional people doing that work, renewing the meaning, and, and it's a work that won't ever end. We're all doing that work in, in practicing. Whether we're, whether we're doing the breath or, or a koan or just sitting. Back to Flora Courtois. If not in church, I decided, then certainly back in school, in the works of the great philosophers, the answers would come. At this time, I had finished one year of college and then had to stay at home a year because of the economic depression. Now, through a tremendous effort, I returned to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor 
borrowing the money for tuition fees, arranging to help with the housework and care of children in a home about three miles from the campus in return for my room and board, and at the same time taking a nearly full class load. This busy schedule of homework and classwork was all on the surface, however, because underneath, walking back and forth to campus, doing my chores, I became increasingly preoccupied with pursuing my doubts to their limits. During the following year or more, with a desperate intensity, I read the works of the mo most of the leading Western philosophers, from Plato to Spinoza, Hume, Berkeley, and on to Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, and Nietzsche, Bradley, Kierkegaard, Bergson, Wittgenstein, and others. Fascinating as much of it was, it all seemed fragmented and one-sided. Nothing satisfied me. Nothing went to the root of my need. I seemed to be moving in endless theoretical and verbal circles, chasing a mirage of ultimate finality. At times I had periods of bleak despair, feeling my quest was hopeless. She had these periods of, of despair, but she kept going. If, if, we, if we take away one thing from this story, it would be this, to, to keep going. keep searching. doesn't mean we always stay doing our, our, our inquiry in, in one particular way. We have to be creative. We have to um, experiment and play. But not to get cynical. To to sincerely search, and that's what's, what strikes so, uh, so strongly about Flora Courtois, her, her sincerity, her earnestness. This, this sincerity is, is an essential ingredient of the spiritual path. We, we consciously strengthen this um, quality through our vows that we make, our aspirations, which, which can help to shape or, or focus our energies. Then one day, in a class in psychology, the instructor made a casual remark to the effect that the world as we saw it was, quotes, simply a projection of neural activity in the visual centers of the brain, close quotes. I walked out of the class and along the street, thunderstruck, saying over and over to myself, all I know, the whole world, even the universe is myself. The answer somehow lies in myself. I was filled with an extraordinary sense of exhilaration with this realization.
This is very much what Ma Tzu, great Chinese master, taught. He said, All of you should realize that your own mind is Buddha. That is, this mind is Buddha's mind. Those who seek for the truth should realize that there is nothing to seek. There is no Buddha but mind. There is no mind but Buddha. Stephen Batchelor makes a comment on this. This is from um, a book by him and, and Martine Batchelor called What Is This? He says, Matsu's point is very simple. He is saying that whatever we seek to achieve in meditation is already right here before our very eyes. As soon as we use words like Buddha or enlightenment or truth, we tend to imagine something that is far away from the condition in which we find ourselves now. Matsu, however, tells us that these things are only ever experienced in the very midst of what it means to be human in this moment. There is no other realm or place where they are to be found. Nor is he saying that they are hidden somewhere in the unconscious depths of our psyche or in some hitherto undiscovered dimension of consciousness. No, they are right here in the messiness, confusion, darkness and anxiety of the very mind that is listening to these words. And one could add the body of the Buddha is nothing but the very body that is sitting on the cushion, its heart beating, its lungs drawing and exhaling each breath, its knees aching from sitting cross-legged. Or as Master Hakuin says, this earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Body, mind really implies body. Body implies mind. So at this point in her in her quest, um, Flora Courtois is is empowered by this realization. All I know, the whole world, even the universe, is myself. The answer somehow lies in myself. It is, it is truly life-changing when we, when we understand this, this uh, phenomenological reality that, that there's nothing, um, there's, no, there's no world outside of our mind that we can experience. There's no world separate from the mind that we can experience. No Buddha that, that is accessible to us except through our mind. Shortly after this, another incident occurred which made a deep impression on me. Standing at the kitchen window one day and looking out at where a path wound under some maple trees, I suddenly saw the scene with a freshness and clarity that I had never seen before. 
simultaneously as though for the first time I fully realized I was not only on the earth but of it, an intimate part and product of it. It was as if a door had briefly opened. (coughs) I stood there transfixed. I remember thinking distant places on the map such as Tibet and North Africa are extensions of right here, all interrelated. It was as if for a long time I had been reading books on how to swim and now for a moment I had plunged into real water. You could say into living water, life-giving truth. After these two incidents, I ceased to search for an answer in reading and became intensely interested in exploring everyday experience. So her, her, it's like her, her field of inquiry is is um, becoming more focused. I became intensely interested in exploring everyday experience. The very nature of sensation itself absorbed my attention. I became increasingly aware of sights, sounds, touch and smell impressions, feelings, all for their own sakes, and the more observant I became, the more endless the vistas which seemed to open. What is more immediate than sensation, I asked myself. Surely reality must somehow permeate immediate sensation, yet each sense is so limited, so partial and incomplete. How does one sense reality whole all at once? Is that possible? I can just um, add also here that these these two insights that she had, uh, which enabled her to, to, to start to look directly at her experience, her sensory experience, were not yet Kensho, but played an extremely important role in her investigation. So um, there are often these little um, glimpses that, that guide us in this process. If we're really... Um, engaging with our question. Like a strong undertow pulling me down and away from the routine surface of life, my inner quest absorbed more and more of my time. I began to stay alone in my room for long periods, just sitting, observing, struggling inwardly for some direct contact. If there is a basic reality that is common to everything, I thought, it must be within my experience too, as well as in everything and everyone else's. Surely I can grasp it immediately and at first hand. Any other way would be only second hand and it would not be it at all. But how could I get at it? How know it first hand? I became preoccupied with the most elementary processes of getting myself reoriented to the earth and to the people and things around me. 
It's difficult to describe this period and the rather eerie feelings that pervaded this groping. I w- it was as if I had been living in a world of ideas and now, having lost confidence in these and having let go of them, I had to start all over again to look at everything, feel it, touch it, sense it it again, almost as an infant does, to realize what experience was truly like. Well, our time is up. Um, We'll we'll stop here at this point, this this new beginning that she's experiencing, and uh, continue um, from that point tomorrow. Right now, we'll um, do the four vows and three prostrations, and then that will finish with a bow to the Buddha and a bow to each other.